How many of you would say you're salty over sweet? You like salty foods over sweet foods. Anybody? You are the chosen ones. So I prefer salty over sweet. I, I would take salty over sweet any day. And there's something about just the right amount of, of salt. Have you ever had this experience where there's too much salt though? I mean, what if a meal just has too much salt? You're like, this is disgusting. Like I, there's no way that I can eat that this is too much salt. The Dead Sea is an example in Israel of too much salt. Everybody goes, oh, I want to swim in the Dead Sea. No, you really don't. It burns, right? It burns your, your skin. And Jesus here gives us an example in Luke 14 that he wants us to be salty. To where when people come in contact with our lives, that they come in contact with Jesus. We use this expression, don't we? You're kind of salty today. Kind of, you're kind of grouchy uh, today. Well, we're going to use it in a different context this morning. Are you salty for Jesus? Is your, your life contagious for Jesus Christ? This whole text leads us up to that exhortation and the challenge that's going to come. Have you lost your seasoning, a salt that has lost it, its flavor? Have we lost the season of Christ in, in our lives? Verse 1 of chapter 14, now it happened as he went into the house on one of... Now it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath that they watched him closely. Amazing that Jesus would spend time with the Pharisees as they're trying to kill him. Only the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. He knows that the Pharisees have it out for him, but yet he goes and has this meal with one of the rulers of the Pharisee, and it's on the Sabbath day, which is important, and they're watching Jesus closely. Not because they worship him, not because they're in awe of him, but because they want to entrap him. They're trying to build up evidence against him to bring Jesus to trial. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? What is dropsy? In the Greek, when we look up uh, this word, it means water. It's to have excess water or be swollen with water. So here on this Sabbath day, this man is, is swollen with water, obviously uncomfortable, obviously sick. And Jesus asked the question to the lawyers and the Pharisees. There's a gathering of these religious leaders. Is it lawful for me to heal on the Sabbath day? This has gotten Jesus in trouble in the past for, for healing on the Sabbath, the religious leaders thought that he was breaking the Sabbath, this day of rest, by, by healing. So Jesus just brings the question right to them. But they kept silent, and he took him and healed him and let him go. They don't have anything to say. Jesus takes this man, touches him, heals him. In verse 5, then he answered them, saying, Which of you, having a donkey or an oxen that has fallen into a pit, will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? So to be salty Christians, number one, is we've got to see the value of life. Jesus sees the value of life. Here it is, the, the Sabbath day, and he sees a man who's suffering and has compassion upon him. Says, I'm going to heal him even though it's the Sabbath. Somehow in this religiosity, somehow for the scribes and the Pharisees, missing a genuine relationship with, with the Lord, they've lost the sight of human need. And yet they would take care of one of their animals. If an animal fell into the pit, 
they would help them on the Sabbath day. But if they saw somebody in need, they wouldn't help them because they're breaking their rest. They're breaking their Sabbath. And for us, sometimes as believers, we have to stop and consider, have I lost the value of human life? That's what makes Jesus so amazing is that he loves and he cares to the point where he died on the cross for us. And I think this is one of the amazing ways that we can be seasoned with Christ is to care for people and love for people, don't you? Because it's really starting to pass away in our culture. We're not living in a culture where we're giving kindness and respect to one another. We're not seeing people as being created in God's image. The sanctity of human life, it's it's a biblical issue to realize each person is created by God, created in his image. Jesus loves them. Jesus died for them. And to treat them with kindness and treat them with respect. And maybe we've even come up with some religious reasons of why not to care for people. Well, here's someone who's in need, but it's Sunday. It's the Sabbath. I I can't take time to go minister to them and love them and and serve them. Or I'm going to a Bible study, so I really don't have time to sit and listen to this, this person that's in need. But seeing the value of human life, being willing to reach out with the love of Jesus Christ, it makes us salty, contagious Christians. In verse six, and they couldn't answer him regarding these things. They don't have an answer to Jesus challenging them, you care for your oxen, you you care for your donkey, but yet you won't care for this man with dropsy on the Sabbath. I mean, Jesus might come to us and say, hey, you treat your dogs better than you treat people here in Colorado. Ouch, right? But that's kind of the reality of culture in, in Colorado. It's like, man, these dogs really have got it good, right? And we have a dog, and I like her sometimes, you know, sometimes I don't, right? But for, for us in our worldview here in Colorado, I'm wondering, do we treat dogs better than we treat people? And treat dogs well, but treat people better. I know that that's not very politically correct, but it's biblically correct, right? And they don't have anything to say to Jesus when he challenges them that they're treating their animals better than they're treating this person that's in need. In verse 7 So he told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, Jesus is watching this take place. Everyone's showing up to this invitation, and they're trying to get the best seats. It wasn't just about the best seat in terms of, hey, this is so I can see well, but it was social status. If I have this seat, then, then I am noticed. Maybe in your workplace, there's some of this jockeying that, that takes place. I've got to be the one that's sitting by the boss, sitting by the CEO. I've, I've got to make these friends and be seen and be recognized. And, and this is all that was taking place is this social positioning. And Jesus is the master teacher, then tells a story to confront their behavior. Isn't that genius? Jesus wants to confront their hearts, but he does it through a story. So he tells them a parable. When you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. Jesus, when you go into 
a wedding feast, don't take the most honorable position because what if someone else comes in that's supposed to be in that place, then you get shamed, right? Hey, could you please move, move back? This is reserved for, for family. Ever made that mistake at a funeral? Like you sit down and someone comes up to you and you're like, hey, this is really reserved for family. You're like, oh, I feel dumb, right? Let, let me move. And so Jesus says, hey, just take the lowly position. Don't be trying to get the, the best seat. Verse nine, but when you're invited, go and sit down in the lowliest place. So that when he who invited you comes in, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. So take the position of humility. Then the master of the feast, the person putting on the party says, why don't you move up to this more honorable position? And here's the truth. Here's the principle that we hang our hat on. But whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will will be exalted. To be a salty Christian, number two, is take the position of lowly service. Yes, Jesus is talking about taking the seat of humility at this wedding feast, but it goes far beyond where you sit. It's the attitude of the heart to say, I am willing to take this lowly position of service. I'm not trying to be seen. I'm not trying to exalt myself. I'm humbling myself. And then Jesus says, if you you humble yourself, you will be exalted. And I think this really causes us to stand out as a salty Christian because we're following in the footsteps of Christ. We're following in the attributes of Christ. Philippians chapter two tells us the mind of Christ. What was Jesus thinking about? Is he esteemed other people's needs better than himself to the point where he humbled himself to come in human flesh? Now that's a big step down. God in human flesh, the creator of the universe, putting on human flesh, humbling himself, living a life of obscurity as a carpenter, rejected by his family, rejected by his hometown, rejected by the religious community, goes to the cross. In his humility, Jesus taking the humble position went to the cross, despising the shame the physical suffering of the cross, the crown of thorns being spit upon, his beard being ripped out, nailed to the cross, whipped, but also the spiritual suffering of the cross where he took my sin upon himself. He took the sin of the world upon himself and he was punished for our sin to be the atoning sacrifice. That's the humility of Christ. He didn't come to be served, but he came to serve. At the end of his life, he gets down and washes the disciples' feet, and he says, I've given you an example to follow. So what are those lowly positions inside of our home? What are those things at your house that just nobody wants to do, right? Speaking of dogs, nobody wants to pick up the dog poop, right? It's not really fun to do the dishes. The laundry is terrible and eternal. It never ends. But who really enjoys do, doing laundry? There's, there's vacuuming. There's all these things that take place in, in the house and go, you know what? I want to do this because of what Christ has done for me. I, I want to serve. I want to bless those around me. I want to esteem other people's needs better than my own. 
for us to stop and pause and go, what are really the needs of my family? You know, what, what are the needs of my wife and, and my kids? What, what's going on in their, in their lives? How can I serve them? How can I be a, a blessing to them? Maybe the lowly position is listening, taking the time to listen and genuinely care and, and concern. Maybe the lowly position is to, to pray and to be diligent to, to pray. When we gather together with believers, whether it's a setting like this or a coffee shop or in a home, do we come with a servant mindset? How can I be a blessing to others? Who's hurting around me? Who needs an encouraging word? Is there a need that I can meet? Or do we take that position of saying, well, I, I want to be exalted. I, I want to be served. I want to be noticed. Why doesn't anybody talk to me? In the workplace, are there some things that just nobody wants to do? Everybody's trying to pawn off that task. No, you deal with them. No, you deal with them. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll deal with them, right? It's taking that lowly position of service. It's humbling ourselves. And what's amazing as we humble ourselves, then God in his timing will bring exaltation. Jesus humbled himself on the cross, but is exalted. His name is higher than any other name. Every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that, that Jesus Christ is Lord. When you're humbling yourself, you're putting yourself under God's hand. But when we walk in pride, when we want to be exalted, we put ourselves where God in his love will oppose us. Several times in scripture, God says he resists the proud. I want us to think about that for a moment. Do we want God resisting us? He's the creator of the universe. He's all powerful. I do not want God resisting me. But he loves me enough to say, Eric, I am not going to bless your pride. I'm not going to bless you exalting yourself. So I'm going to resist that in your life. But he gives grace to the humble. One of the ways that humility is expressed is to not see ourselves above being a particular task. Or I really deserve to sit in the front. No, I'm a sinner that's saved by grace, and so it's a privilege to be able to serve. Like John the Baptist, I'm not even worthy to take off Jesus's sandals. So part of being that salty Christian is, is take that lowly place of service. Is there some snow that needs to be shoveled in the neighborhood? Aren't you guys loving 59 today? It's great. Like, go, go for a walk. But we've had a lot of snow, and it's been cold. And who in your neighborhood need, needs help uh, with, with their snow? One of our neighbors a, a few weeks ago, her and her brother lived together. And she says, I'm going to be out of town and her brother's in a wheelchair. Would you, would you guys be willing to come help with the snow? And we're like, yeah, send a text. And our younger two kids got a business going, shoveling snow. And I was surprised I got a text from her where she said, you don't have to worry about helping my brother with the snow. He, he passed away and he just suddenly passed away. And I was like, man, that really hit me. And texted back to her how we could try to reach out to her. But our kids just going out and being willing to shovel snow and to earn some extra money, you know, ended up opening up doors of opportunity in our neighborhood. Sometimes it doesn't take a lot. You know, who, who can I serve in my new neighborhood? Who can I serve in my, my workplace? And it gives us an opportunity to uh, share Christ. Verse 12 then he also said to him who invited him, when you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. Our human nature says, I'm going to love and serve those 
who can love and serve me back. So I'm going to be a friend to someone who can return that favor. I'm going to invite somebody over that will invite me over. But in this expression of humility, look for somebody who can't pay you back. Look for someone that you can just simply bless in in Jesus' name. But when you give him a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. This is the heart of the gospel. Jesus, as we'll talk about in just a moment, he welcomes us to his feast. And we're poor, and we're maimed, and we're lame, and we're blind, and we're broken. Yet God in his grace invites us to his his table. So we go out in Jesus' name and invite people that can't pay us back. Those that might be surprised that we're reaching out to them. Notice where the reward comes. The reward comes at the resurrection of the just. This is the resurrection of believers at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus comes with his reward for believers. You may be serving and taking this lowly position and going, it doesn't seem to be getting me anywhere. I've been serving my spouse and they don't seem to appreciate it and have a hard heart. Maybe they're an unbeliever. You find yourself in a difficult marriage and you're like, I've been taking this lowly position of, of service. Not perfectly, but I've been trying to do that and it doesn't seem to be working. I've been serving my kids. They don't seem very grateful, right? At my job, I've been taking this lowly position of service. I've been taking that trash out for 15 years and no one said thanks or even noticed. God notices, Jesus notices, and when he comes, when he returns, he's going to come with his, his reward. Verse 15, now when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. So someone listening goes, oh man, how great is it going to be to eat bread in the kingdom of God, to be at the ultimate feast? So number three of of being a salty Christian is we enter into the ultimate feast. We enter into this feast that God has given to us. And as we enter in, then we get to extend the invitation to others. Then he said to him, a certain man gave a great supper and invited many and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, come for all things are now ready. Have you ever cooked up a big meal and realized you need some help eating it? Maybe you've got a brisket in the freezer, and you're like, okay, I'm going to smoke this, or had an extra turkey, and it wasn't Thanksgiving, and you cook up a a turkey, or a big batch of of chicken noodle soup. This is kind of the idea here. The the master has this big meal, but it's last minute on the invitation. It's supper time, the meal's done, go out and give the invitation of who can come. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I've bought a piece of ground. I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. The other said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. (laughs) Oh, that, that's probably the best excuse of, the, of all of them, right? With this invitation, they all could have said yes. It's an evening invitation. They could have said, yeah, I did buy some land, but I'm going to go to this feast. I'm going to enjoy this dinner, 
and I'm going to go check on my land tomorrow. Yeah, I got five new oxen, but I'm going to go and enjoy the feast, then I'll tend to my oxen. Yeah, babe, we just got married, but we're starting off our marriage with a free meal, right? <laughs> this, is, this is a great way. This, we need to be at, at this feast. These excuses don't keep them from entering in, but they're ones that we can relate to because they involve work, they involve business, and they involve relationship. God invites us into his kingdom, and sometimes the reality of work, the reality of relationships keeps people out of the kingdom of God. How many people have just been too busy over the course of their life where they never stop to consider the claims of Christ? I've just been working all the time, just trying to survive, never opened up their Bible or really examined, is Jesus God, or wrestled with the question, is there eternal life? Is there a heaven and is there a hell? For some, haven't entered into God's feast, haven't trusted Christ their Savior because of a relationship. Maybe there's someone very important in their life that doesn't value Christ, that will look down upon them if they, they trust Christ. Or they've just focused on all of the human relationships and never taken the time to consider a relationship with Christ. In verse 21, so that servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house being angry said to his servant, the master's angry. He actually expected these people to come. You know, he expected that they would respond and want to come to the feast. So continues on and says, go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. Go out to the difficult parts of town. Go to the homeless community. Go to the streets and the lanes of the city. Go to Acacia Park. Go to Tejon and, and I-25. And invite them to my feast. I don't want this turkey, this brisket to, to go to waste. Let's just open up the doors, open up the invitation. What's interesting about this group that's being invited is they're not too busy. They're broken. They're, they're blind. They're maimed. They're lame. They don't have business ventures to keep them from coming into the feast Largely times they're marginalized and they're rejected. They don't have relationships that are keeping them from entering into the feast. In order for us to enter into the kingdom of God and enter into salvation, we've got to realize our need. We've got to realize that we're broken, that we're sinners, that we, we need a savior. If we don't realize that we're sinners, we're not going to be attracted to the gospel. In verse 22, And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded. And still there's room. There's still room. Then the master said to the servant, go out into the highways, the hedges, and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. We have the joy of entering into Christ's feast. He says, come and dine, receive the forgiveness of sins. But we also get the joy of inviting people to the party. And that's part of being a salty Christian, isn't it? We get to share with people from all aspects of life, from those that are doing business and connected in relationship to those that are homeless, to those that are broken physically. And the heart of God is go out, go out to the hedges, go out to the byways, go out to the outcasts, go out to the rejected and let them know they've got a home. Let them know they've got an invitation, that they've got a place in God's house. Jesus has said it best. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him 
should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's a large invitation. It's whosoever. It's the wealthy of the world. It's the educated of the world. It's those that are down and out, those that have great health, and those that are broken. But we get to take the invitation out. And when the invitation of Christ is rejected, don't get discouraged because the heart of God is keep taking the invitation out. So that person said, no, I'm too busy. That person said, no, I've got this business thing going on. I've got this relational thing going on. Just keep taking the gospel out. Keep taking the invitation out to the highways, to the byways, to the hedges, and and compel them to come. In verse 24, for I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. Seems kind of harsh. Jesus saying, hey, look, if you didn't respond to the invitation, you can't change your mind and come back later. But it does speak to the finality of your decision with Jesus. If you say no to his invitation throughout the course of your life, not just once or twice, but through the course of your life, then ultimately when you die, it's too late. And that's why this morning it's important. Have you entered into the feast? I want to be specific of what I'm talking about. Have you trusted Christ as your savior? The good news, the gospel that Jesus died for your sins and rose again to turn from your sin and receive his grace and forgiveness. And this morning, may this morning be the morning where you choose and say, I am receiving the grace of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin. I'm not gonna make an excuse any longer. Then for us as believers, I think it's so important. If we're gonna have the seasoning of Christ in our lives, we've gotta not only enter into this feast that Jesus offers at salvation, but we've gotta abide there, amen? We gotta continue to fellowship with Jesus and to dine at his table. Because when we're dining at his gracious table, then he puts his mark on our lives. It's very difficult to have the seasoning of Christ in my life if I'm not spending time with him. If I'm not just enjoying his grace, enjoying his goodness, enjoying his presence, being at his table. So, so enter into his feast and continue to dine there. Maybe you've got your favorite restaurant. Keep going back, right? I love Chipotle. I get the same thing every time. You know what I love more? The grace and the goodness of God. Why wouldn't I dwell there? Why wouldn't I abide there and enjoy the goodness of the Lord? The last thing for us to consider this morning is live as a disciple. To be a salty Christian, we've got to live as a disciple. Now great multitudes went with him and he turned and said to them, that's important. Jesus is addressing the multitudes. Many were attracted to his teachings and his miracles But he challenges them and says, if you're going to follow me, that this is what it takes. If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. What's Christ saying here? He's saying that he has to be our greatest relationship. That our allegiance is to Christ above all, above all other relationships. What does it mean to be a disciple? That's a phrase we use a lot as believers, but what does it mean? It means to be a follower of Jesus. This is a time of apprenticeship. This is how you would learn, is you would be the disciple, you would be the apprentice. And for us to be the disciple is we acknowledge that Jesus is king, that he's Lord. We're gonna follow him. When Jesus invited his disciples, he said, follow me. It was very clear. It wasn't, hey, we're just gonna hang out and spend time together. No, you're going to follow me. I'm, I'm in charge here. I'm the Lord. We come to understand 
Jesus, I want to follow you. I'm choosing to follow you. I'm choosing to accept your authority in my life. And we begin to learn of him. A disciple would, would learn from his teacher. And we say, Jesus, I want to be taught by you. I want you to instruct me. I want to emulate what I see in your life. And Jesus says, okay, if you're going to be my disciple, if you're going to be trained in that way, then you have to hate your mother, your father, your children, your brothers, and, and your sister. I want to try to explain this and illustrate this. So bear, bear with me. So I've got four kids. We have four kids. Three girls and a boy. Our oldest daughter's 19 and our youngest is 10 and they kind of stair-step uh, down in ages. And I love kids. I really do. I just enjoy kids. I, I enjoy the kids uh, around the church. If I'm in an airport, I, I, I enjoy kids. I love kids. But you know what? I love my four kids a lot more than everybody else's kids. And I know that might be offensive to your children, but you feel the same way, right? It's like, I love my kids. That They're my kids. And my allegiance is to them, even though I enjoy kids. And this is what Jesus is speaking to, is that our allegiance for Christ is even more so than to our families. Now, the ironic thing that happens is when we love Jesus is that he gives us a heart for our families. When you follow Christ, it's not that you're going to disengage or abandon your families in the name of Jesus. That doesn't line up with the teaching of Scripture. But what Christ is really communicating to us here is, yes, he has to be the most important relationship in our lives. By the way, I think this is the best marriage advice that I could possibly give, is love Jesus more than you love your spouse. Because your spouse was never created to be Jesus. And as wonderful as your spouse is, and I'm sure your, wonderful, your spouse is amazing, your spouse is still a sinner. Your spouse is not the bread of life. You may have thought your husband would be the bread of life when you married him, but I'm sure you've come to find out he is not the bread of life. He, your wife is not the living water. She cannot satisfy your soul. She can be an immense blessing in your life. But you've got to get your eyes on Jesus. Jesus has got to be your portion. Jesus is the one that you have to, to follow. And when two people have their eyes on Jesus and they're a disciple of Christ, then Jesus brings them closer together than they could ever get on their own. For those of you that are single that are thinking about getting married, is marry somebody who loves Jesus more than they love you. You want to marry somebody that loves Jesus. Determine now to say, I'm going to love Jesus even more than my future spouse. The best gift that we can give to our parents is to love Jesus even more than we love them. For them to see a genuine and authentic relationship with Christ. Verse 27, and whoever doesn't bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. They would understand clearly what this means to bear your cross. If you're bearing your cross, you're headed to execution. They're living in the Roman Empire. They're watching people get executed. Jesus is going to bear his cross. And he's saying, if you're going to follow me, you have to bear your cross. Which would mean an end to our lives. An end to our selfishness. A willingness to embrace suffering. And Matthew 16, verse 25 and 26, it says, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to you if a man gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What's ironic 
is if we choose to bear our cross and take up our cross and follow Jesus, that this is when we find abundant life, not the easy life. Jesus said, I came to give you life and to give it more abundantly. The cross does lead to glory. The other side of the cross was glory for Jesus. And as we choose to bear our cross, to embrace the suffering, to reject selfishness, to live for him instead of live for ourselves, it ultimately does lead to abundant life. The most miserable days are the selfish days, agreed? When we're focused on ourselves, it's miserable. But when we're focused on Christ and we're focused on others, there's life, there's, there's abundant life that is there. Most of the time, what I see in my life and in other believers' lives where we get stumbled is when there's suffering in our lives that we didn't sign up for. We go, Lord, I didn't really anticipate this health challenge or, or this difficulty. I never would have thought I would have lost this, this loved one. Or God, I've tried to serve you and follow you and all I've gotten in return is rejection and persecution. And we're left with a choice. Are we still gonna trust and follow Jesus even in the midst of suffering? And if you choose to say, I don't understand this, but I'm gonna embrace this. I'm not gonna get bitter or angry at God because of the suffering that he's allowed. This is my cross that the Lord's allowing for me to bear. There's gonna be sweetness. There's gonna be fellowship that comes with, with Jesus. Not easy, but fellowship that comes with Jesus. But if we get to this place where we go, hey, no one told me that there was going to be suffering. When I trusted Christ as my Savior, I, I didn't realize that there was going to be suffering and difficulty. Well, Jesus is making it pretty clear here, isn't he? Saying, hey, my follower, it involves suffering. It's worthwhile suffering. It's leading to tremendous glory, but it's going to involve suffering. I think in our culture, it's really hard for us to hear words of suffering. We want to hear words of comfort. We want to hear this idea that God just wants to make me comfortable and happy. And that's an American Christianity, but it's not a biblical Christianity. Is God wants us to follow him. And in following him, we find abundant life. But it does mean embracing suffering. It does mean a death to ourselves. In verse 28, For which of you, intending to build a tower, doesn't sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. If you've lived in the springs for a while, remember Great Wolf Lodge before it was Great Wolf Lodge? It was a shell of a building. It was a hotel that started getting built and the recession happened in 2008 and it sat and it sat and it sat, and we wondered, what in the world's ever going to happen with that building? And now it's the amazing Great Wolf Lodge, right? And able to go have some fun with, with the family. But something happened. They started building, and they weren't able to finish. And Jesus is encouraging us with discipleship to count the cost. Or what king going to make war against another king doesn't sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. You're going to weigh that out, aren't you? What are my odds? Two to one, not very good. Or else while the other is a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you doesn't forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. 
So Jesus wants to be the greatest relationship. He wants us to take up our cross and embrace suffering. And he wants us to forsake all, to be his, his disciple. Where what's more important to us than making money or climbing up different ladders, all of those things. Jesus, you are the most important in my life and I'm going to forsake all and follow you. I find Christ's teaching on discipleship to be very challenging. I don't think that this is something that we ever go, oh, I've arrived. You know, I've reached the apex of being a disciple. It's no, I, Lord, this is challenging to me. No, no matter how long I've walked with you, you're, you're confronting my selfishness and you're desiring that I would, would follow you. So here's the result. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for land nor for dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears, let him hear. Salt is good, but has it lost its flavor? And as a believer, are we at a place where we've lost that Jesus seasoning in our life? <laughs> if we're honest with ourselves and we're listening, it says, he that has an ear, let him hear. If we're listening to the Holy Spirit, go, you know what? When people come in contact with my life, they're not really coming in contact with, with Jesus. Well, thankfully, God allows U-turns, doesn't he? He allows us to turn back to him to renew the joy of our salvation, to renew this commitment to uh, discipleship. Uh, my wife gave a devotional uh, recently, and I'm going to steal her work, so share it with you. But we put in a wood stove uh, recently in our, in our home. Uh, we've got a fireplace that was empty and sucked out a lot of the hot air when you'd light it. So with the cost of utilities, we're like, yeah, we're going to get a wood stove. It's a wood stove insert, and we've been burning wood and it's been a blessing and it's been fun but you put in wood at night and then you come in the morning and it just seems like this fire is completely dead and got to clean out the ashes and and that process of cleaning out the ashes you come to discover just under the surface there's some really hot coals they just need to be stirred up a little bit and that's the best thing to being able to light a fire is those those hot coals and as they're stirred and as oxygen comes, they get hot. And then you, you put on, especially pine. Pine catches really, really fast. And boom, you've got this fire. And maybe that's how you feel about your relationship with the Lord. That's how you feel about being a salty Christian. You go, it's just kind of gotten dormant. I'd encourage you, you're not dead. You're not dead. The Spirit of God lives inside of you. And right beneath the surface is this contagious love for Jesus Christ. But it needs to be stirred up a little bit. We need to let the Holy Spirit come into that place and say, okay, it's time. It's time to wake up those things in our lives, to see people, to value people that they're created by God, that Jesus died for them, to really look at this cost of discipleship and say, man, am I following Christ? Am I pressing into this relationship with the Lord? Am I entering into the feast? Am I enjoying the provisions that God graciously provides? Am I taking this lowly position that my flesh fights so much? Am I, am I willing to, to humble myself and allow the Spirit of God to come into our hearts and our lives and make us salty Christians? Because I'm so thankful it's not by power or by might, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. There's no way we can do this apart from the Lord. As we turn to Him and ask for a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit, that He would 
then allow our lives to be the seasoning of Christ. So would you stand with me and let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you do allow us to return to you. You allow us to come back to you. And if we take an honest look at our hearts and our lives, a lot of times our priorities are things that are other than you. And we want to return to that first love. Would you renew to us the joy of our salvation? Holy Spirit, would you come and just stir us up? Lord, we pray for those that don't know you, that this morning that they would hear your invitation of grace, of forgiveness, of love, of eternal life. And Lord, that you would mark our lives with Jesus. We want our lives to be marked with you. So we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.